You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed, and I'm here today with Cesar Hidalgo, who is the director of the Center for Collective Learning at University of Toulouse. I hope I got that correctly. And he used to be at MIT Media Labs, and he is the author of, most recently, this book right here, which is called How Humans Judge Machines. He's co-author of this study, which is described in depth in this book, and also this one right here, which is uh, Why Information Grows, The Evolution of Order from Atoms to Economies. Welcome, Cesar. Thank you for having me here. I want to start off talking about this book, Why Information Grows. And just before we start recording, we were talking about how this book has appealed to a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley. And I think in part it's because, you know, you kind of trespass with without permission into probably a dozen different disciplines. I mean, there is network theory, there is sociology, there's economics, there's physics, there's information theory. There's so many different disciplines that are all brought together. So this to me was just a, it was like a roller coaster ride and I really enjoyed it. And so I thought we'd start by talking about that book. And when I teach my strategy class, I always start with this image of pediment from a Greek temple. And it depicts the allegory of the the Lapiths. And the Lapiths were these Greek people who were besieged on all sides by by the centaurs. It's a famous, you know, battle from Greek mythology. And I, I say that this really depicts the constant struggle that we have between order and chaos, the struggle against entropy. And of course, in business, entropy means perfect competition, right? And so it's a very metaphorical use of the term. This book is in many ways about the expansion of information and keeping entropy at bay. And so I've learned a lot from this book because for people who aren't physicists, what little we know about physics, we know that matter and energy, these things, there's a constant and you can't really expand or contract the combination of these two things. And then we also learn something about how there is this constant urge towards chaos and towards disorder. But in your book, you talk about how we are continuously increasing the amount of information or order in our world. And this seems a bit counterintuitive. One would think that there's like a constant level of chaos or order and that we're just reorganizing things and reshuffling things. I think famously talked about how individuals came from little pieces of dirt and then they went back to little pieces of dirt and it was just this constant flux. So how is it that we can see a constant increase in the amount of information and the reduction in the amount of disorder entropy in the world? So that's a great question. And of course, I'm not the first one to ask that question. And that part of the book builds a lot on the work of a Nobel Prize winner called Ilya Prigozhin. He was a Russian-born, but uh, then Belgian physicist and chemist who was the father of thermodynamics out of equilibrium. Because in some way before him, there was a lot of people that started to study thermodynamics. Thermodynamics was a field that grew enormously during the 19th century. You know, at that time, like the, the steam engine, the heat engine, the, all of these engines were like what today, you know, computer science and AI are. They were like at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. And now you would think of as the forefront of the science that was pushing that Industrial Revolution was that science of thermodynamics. And people figure out that thermodynamics was driven by, you know, some certain potential so you could 
estimate where a system would end up if you understood the potential that the system satisfied. But Prigozhin later was able to uh, look at thermodynamics that was out of equilibrium. And he figured out that in the systems that were out of equilibrium, uh, you could have the spontaneous generation of order. And there's a beautiful example that, that he provides and I echo in my book, which is when you have a, a bathtub or a receptacle that is full of water, and when that is all still, the water molecules are going in every direction. They're following Brownian motion. So in some sense, they achieve that maximum entropy state and they stay there. But when you remove the plunger and the water starts racing down the drain, now the system is no longer in equilibrium. And as the molecules of water start racing down the drain, they're trying to find a way to fall into that sink. And that generates this spontaneous order in which a little whirlpool forms. And that whirlpool, it's actually, you know, a system in which now there's correlation between the speeds and there's a profile of speeds of the molecules as you go, you know, from the center of the whirlpool to the edges. And that helps organize the entire surrounding of the water that is falling into the drain in a state of lower entropy than the one I was before, but it can do so only as long as the water keeps on falling, as long as basically energy is being spent. Now, as a consequence of that, of course, the, there's some friction that happens and there's entropy that is being created. So the system is reducing entropy locally, but you know it's increasing you know, some of that entropy more globally by sweating it at the edges. And that's a very profound insight because it tells us, like in the example that you, you were mentioning before, we come from dirt, we go back to being dirt, but in between, we're kind of like that little whirlpool that, you know, for 70, 80, 90 years, if we're lucky, as long as we eat and we stay healthy, we are able to sustain this insane amount of order that is expressed, you know, in our DNA, that is available in each one of the, you know, cells of our body, in the molecules that these cells help form, but also the order that we, of course, start to generate in our brain as we start, you know, to create synapses and remember things. So it is all about this out of equilibrium systems. And you can think of it in the whirlpool, you can think of it in the context of humans, and you can think of it in the context of our planet, because our planet is being bathed by energy from the sun every day. And that is one of the reasons why we have been able to develop life and we have to been able to develop economies here because it is the use of that energy, where it is the energy that we harvest directly from the sun or the one that is in that, you know, saving accounts that we call underground mineral deposits is the one that allows us to keep that order running, is to take the rock out of the mountain and build the castle, is the one that allows us to create this society that is complex, is full of intricacies, and that would not be able to live if that energy would go away. That would basically disappear because you need to keep the system running to keep it organized. Yeah, I think you referred to Earth as this little island of information in the vast kind of chaos of the cosmos. And that was, a, I love that image. You know, when we talk about information, so information is a term that's used in pretty much every discipline, and it seems like everyone uses it a bit differently. We have information economics. I teach data science. And one of the first things that we do in data science, one of the first questions that I ask students is, what is information? And of course, you know, everyone kind of bounces around. Nobody, nobody really comes up with a good explanation. But to data scientists, information is un uncertainty reduction, and it is about entropy reduction. But in those states where you have the least amount of entropy, in some sense, that is a state where there's less information. In other words, it's easier to communicate that state, right? If we define information as the, the number of bits that we need in order to communicate 
information about a state, then it would seem like the most chaotic state is the one that requires the most information to describe, right? Like photo album were deleted and replaced with just pure static. That would actually increase the amount of information according to one definition. So are there these definitions of information that are intention? How, how do you define information in this way that allows for its kind of continual growth? In some way, there is a bit of a confusion because um, the same formula was discovered in the theory of communication of Nyquist and Shannon and in statistical physics. So is this formula for entropy, which in physics has a, a very interesting interpretation, uh, which is basically the number of microstates that are compatible with a macrostate. You know, so let's say that we have like people, you know, in the bleachers of a stadium and, and we give them red and blue cardboards and they could create pictures. They can create patterns doing that. Basically, you know, if we would define like a macro state, for instance, half of the panels being red, half of the panels being blue, how many combinations we have that are compatible with that macro state that would be the entropy of that state. And it's easy there to realize that, well, in the state that all of the panels are red or all of the panels are blue. There's only one combination. But in the one that they're half and half, there's a lot of different combinations that could happen. And what, what, what um, this idea that entropy gets maximized in the universe eventually means from a very simple perspective is that a state that has many combinations is so large that systems end up in it no matter what. Now, when we talk about information in the context of like, the theory of communication of Shannon, we're talking about the number of yes or no questions that we need to answer to guess a message. So now people would have like those, those cardboards up on the bleachers and you would have to guess if they're making the picture of a dog or whether they're making a Pac-Man or were that all random and, and so forth. Now, if we would know something about the macro state, let's say if we know that all of the same color, doing that guess would be very easy. But if we know that half of them are red and half of them are blue, then guessing the exact you know, microstate is going to be very hard and we're going to need a lot of questions. So we're going to need a lot of information to specify that microstate. So I think that's sort of like one way to a little bit reconcile those two ideas, which is given like that macrostate, how many yes or no questions you will need to do to discover the microstate. If it's a high entropy macrostate, you're going to need a lot of yes or no questions, meaning that you're going to need to communicate more information because in the first case, when they're all the same, you just say it's blue or it's red, just one bit and you're done. In the other case, you're going to have to figure out a way to start partitioning that space to figure out different portions of it or different rows and columns and, and it will take you much longer. So the way you're thinking about information is really the state of order, where, which may actually be easier to communicate, require less kind of yes, no questions in order to communicate. In other words, there's correlations and there's structure. I love the example that you use about the luxury car that crashes. And you talk about how when this car crashes, information is lost. There's really only a small number of ways that this Bugatti can be organized and function properly, but there's almost an infinite number of ways that this thing can be dysfunctional, right? When it smashes into the wall. And so in what sense what is this object frozen information, right? I think that's one of the key messages of your book is that physical objects that were created for some reason contain information, that they're vehicles for information. They're kind of buckets into which we deposit information. 
That's one of the things that I think as a physicist, I, I help bring maybe through the book to a more general audience, which is people tend to think of information as something that is non-physical, but in some way, everything has to have some sort of physical embodiment. So people think that, hey, words are non-physical, but you know, it's very hard to speak in the vacuum. The words are not, because actually you're encoding, in that case, you know, information in the way that, you know, the sound waves, you know, are made of, you know, pressure waves in the air. Similarly, you know, light is used to encode information and so forth. And we tend to understand that information and communication are related. But when we understand that information is physical, you can think when I organize things, I could be organizing bits on a hard drive, but I could also be organizing sticks, you know, on a structure. Is that information too? And the answer is yes. You know, like any form of physical order that you produce, whether it is for the purpose of communicating with others or not, it has a content of information from a physical perspective, not from the communication perspective, but from that physical entropy perspective that we were discussing. So once you get there, you realize your phone even when it's shut down and turned off, it has, you know, information in part that is stored on the hard drive and it's information that involves communication in part in the hardware itself. When you look at, you know, a car, when you look at a computer, when you look at a camera, a microphone, a shoe, a refrigerator, all of those things that, you know, are not going to appear naturally uh, out of, you know, a mountain are, are, you know, also things that involve information. The only thing that would appear naturally, of course, that includes a lot of information are things that are alive. Think of an apple, it's, it's made of cells and so forth, an onion, an animal. They are also rich in terms of information, but information is not only connected to communication. Information is connected to all forms of physical order. And that is beautiful because it allows you to communicate other things. And that's a little bit of like the, the insight of the book, which is that when you put information in a message, you can communicate with someone. But when you put information in an object, you can pass on the practical uses of your knowledge. So if I create an object that allows you to do something, you know, if I create a phone, I allow you to communicate with people at long distances. If I create a hot air balloon, I allow you to go up in the sky and, and survey the land. You know, these are things that I cannot do simply by communicating, but I can do by encoding information in objects that help me, you know, amplify those practical uses of knowledge and distribute it through the population. You said that the existence of solids, the existence of, of a solid state is necessary in order to encode this information. And you, you gave this example of freezing a whirlpool, then this would essentially take that kind of steady state of disequilibrium and package it in a way that could be considered uh, lasting information. So solids, yes, they're, they're important. And I think the Whirlpool example is more metaphorical than physical, but a better example would be DNA. So imagine you have a molecule of DNA contains, you know, like information that then you can unpack in, in the context of creating or building a life. But because of thermodynamics, that molecule of DNA is under pressure of being getting disorganized, like switching sometimes some bases for others. And in some sense, what temperature means is that there is some randomness or disorder going on in the system. So uh, at higher temperatures, it's really hard to keep that order. And our body, of course, is always fighting and working to keep our DNA in the way that it needs to be, it keeps the proteins, you know, properly folded and so forth. And as you get, for instance, like a high fever, you know, the problem of like having like a fever when it gets really high is that those processes start to fail. So because of that battle between creating order and the natural tendency of the universe to 
unfold that order. When you have a solid and you're able to crystallize those bits or to crystallize that that organization, you're able to accumulate more of it because you know, the one that you are able to save, you don't need to recreate so you can add to it. In a world in which everything would be fluid, it would be really hard because it would be hard to save the progress that you made at creating that order. And that's why life in some way builds, you know, uh, its complexity in its ability to create molecules that that have very long-term memories, like DNA, you know, that are very stable under a bunch of conditions, because that's the way that we can preserve, you know, that order of information, not only through our life, but through generations. You use the metaphor of the apple, right? The apple that you eat and, and the apple that you write your book on. And you said that in many ways, they're kind of the same thing, right? They're crystallized information, but in some ways they're different. One is crystallized imagination. And so there's almost a qualitative leap there that was made. And you allude to this distinction between knowledge and know-how. And then you tried to tie the two together by saying that maybe with an organism, there is the knowledge of what the, I think you used the example of the um, seed and the, the seed has both the knowledge of the plant, but also know-how of how to build this plant from scratch. So does that mean that you know knowledge and know-how exist both in the apple that we eat and also the apple that we kind of write our books on? Or is there some fundamental difference? Just to clarify some of those definitions for our listeners, hopefully now are all on the same page that you can use information to encode messages or you can use information you know, in objects to communicate the practical uses of knowledge. Now, what is knowledge? So knowledge is different from information and it's related to that capacity to create or read that information. And you can find it in biology, you can find it in society. In the case of a seed, you have information on the DNA, but a seed is not just a little piece of DNA that gets thrown out the window and falls into the ground and, and a plant grows from there. There's a lot of things that go together because it's a full cell with a lot of other molecular machines that are able to unpack that piece of information that exists in the DNA mm -hmm. into the creation of you know the plant. So uh, similarly, in the case of humans, like knowledge... Whereas if, if I buy a shoe, there's knowledge in this shoe, but the, the know-how of how to build the shoe, I can't necessarily infer it from possession of the shoe, right? Exactly. So the knowledge is going to be on people and it's going to be on the networks that people form on the teams that, of course, can consume that information and they can do something with it and they can produce new information. But it is the packing of the knowledge and the know-how what is hard and what it's difficult to move across geographies. So a, a lot of the book then goes into that uh, even though we can communicate the practical uses of our knowledge by creating objects, having the knowledge that we need to create objects that are actually relevant, important, that endow us with uh, key capacities is very difficult. Building planes or building telecommunication networks is something that single individuals cannot do and require these large teams. And it is that unpacking of that knowledge and know-how what is hard. By knowledge, I mean explicit knowledge, the one that can be communicated by know-how, I mean the tacit knowledge, the one that can only be learned through experience, you know, and involves, you know, either massive memory or having work in close relationship with others to learn things that are not easy to communicate in, in a book or in a message. Before we get into economies and societies, we can still talk about computation, right? So I think you use this metaphor that a tree is a computer powered by sunlight. And so you walk through this, these kind of stages where 
you know, first we need solids and then we need computation in order to have a world where this information grows, right? Yeah, exactly. So there is kind of like this sort of dance or duality between, you know, like our ability to store information and our ability to then unpack it by having the processes that, you know, allow, you know, what they would call computation, which is this ability to create information, to read and write it. In a tree, you, you have that process too, because as the tree, you know, reproduces itself and let's say grows a limb, you know, grows a branch, it, it is in some way harvesting the energy of the sun to, you know, produce new molecules of DNA because that DNA is getting replicated to produce a, a number of different organelles as the tree is growing. So the book is in some sense, you know, using its knowledge to self-replicate and also to run other programs as, as you think, for instance, you know, photosynthesis, which is this ability to then capture carbon from the air that the tree is then going to use to, to build its own structure. So. That's a little bit of the analogy that I, I tried to build on there. And then when you move to the level of the economy, you define the, an economy as a system which amplifies knowledge and, and know-how through the physical embodiment of inf information, right? You call it, talk about an economy as sort of an amplification engine. Now, I think all of us now would probably agree that we live in the knowledge economy and that everything's built on knowledge. I think Economic historians would say, well, that's always been the case. Yeah. That's what it really what it means to be, you know, human is that we kind of traffic in this knowledge. But I think it's obvious, it's much more obvious now. But what did you really mean by that? How could we, how does that, what does that illustrate to think of the economy as not the kind of exchange of goods and services, but really as a kind of a amplification engine for knowledge? Yeah. So at the end of the day, like the economy involves like this grow of productivity, doing more with less. Yes. And that ability to do more with less can only grow as long as the things that we do or the way that we do things changes over time. And those changes come from knowledge. So like our ability to crystallize information into products, that ability to create to product. And honestly, creating products is key because services are not that scalable. It's one of the things that, of course, you know, allows us to increase our productivity because it is what eventually technology ends up being. Now you have a farmer that is able to run a farm of many hectares, you know, with a very small crew because, you know, of the mechanization of, of farm labor and the sophistication that has happened over the last, you know, 100 years. Yeah. So that's a little bit like what I mean is like we have a society in which, you know, we are trying to fight entropy to create these objects that are rich in information. But what does these objects help us do is well is they help us amplify those practical uses of knowledge. So there's few people that have that knowledge on how to build that tractor or how to you know synthesize that fertilizer or to do any of those things. And that knowledge is very useful if it's not crystallized into a product, if, if it doesn't transform into something that can be reproduced, manufactured and shared, it's gonna have a very limited impact on the productivity of the world. And it's that ability to go all the way to product, you know, that allows that knowledge to eventually escape the circle of its own creators and its practical uses to be amplified. So today we live in a world in which we all can do amazing stuff because we're able to do things that we have no clue how to build, you know, and we live in this world in which, you know, we are kind of like superhuman and at the same time, extremely limited in our individual capacities because of this knowledge amplification capacities that products give you. So products are not just kind of like one thing here or there in the economy. They're actually something that is really 
key. It's, it's very different from a service because it has that scalable property of being able to endow others with the practical uses of knowledge that otherwise would be trapped in a small team. Are you using the term product kind of metaphorically in part? I mean, if we think about, say, licensing intellectual property or, or something like that, right? If we take the division of labor and instead of thinking about it like, all right, I'm going to you know, send you some buttons and then you add the buttons to the jacket. Instead, I'm going to send you a, a template or I'm going to send you kind of a blueprint and then you would you know, build off that blueprint. I think that blueprint for you would count as a product, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think of product in a very broad sense. Like for instance, today we live in a world in which we have a lot of software products and I make a big difference between, you know, a firm that makes you know, services in the software industry and one that makes software products. For instance, Google, like Gmail, is a software product. There's a very small marginal cost of getting a new user. The product, like in some sense, is scalable, works in a similar way of like a physical product in that it has that scalability of manufacturing, the ability to reach those large markets, even though it's software and some people would classify it as service. Well, there are other things that occur in the software world that would not qualify as products because, you know, you need more people working on them, the more clients you would have. So there's some, you know, for example, firms that would do uh, advertisement videos through the web and the more clients they get, the more people they have to have on their, you know, offices clicking around and creating those animations for them and reaching to the clients. Well, in that case, it's not, you know, something that has that product-like property. That product-like property is really that one that allows something to explode. And I think that's why, you know, all of VCs are always searching for product firms because product firms have kind of like that potential scalability. It's kind of interesting because I think ex-ante, you would think that it would be easier to transmit kind of information in some raw state than to transfer, you know, goods. Even though we've seen this massive reduction in the cost of moving goods around the world, right, over the last you know, couple of decades, we talk about how transmitting data is more or less free, right? You push a button and you send a, a packet of, of information. You know, knowledge, it's actually quite sticky and it's quite local and it's quite specific. In economics, we often refer to aluminum as frozen electricity. We usually, you know, locate the aluminum plants right next to the cheap sources of electricity because it's easier to ship solid aluminum than to transmit the electricity over, you know, thousands of miles and of wires and so forth. And I think part of your argument is that products are frozen knowledge and transferring the know-how that went into the construction of this, that's kind of sticky. That's sort of, you know, local, it's specific and hard to move around. Why is that? Why is it the case that know-how is sticky? Is it because it's embodied in our, you know, individual people's minds or the network of people that happen to be in contact with one another in some physical way? So knowledge and know-how has, they, they have a lot of properties that I think we've discovered over the last, you know, few decades. We know that, for example, knowledge is non-rival. We know that knowledge can be tacit or explicit. So, you know, I call tacit knowledge know-how in the book. But one property that to me it's extremely important is that knowledge is complex. And what I mean by that is that it is not kind of like a one thing. It's not like a dough that is undifferentiated and you can have more of it. It's not like an aggregate quantity. And any model, you know, that looks at knowledge from an aggregate perspective can only go so far because a better analogy, it is like a, like a very large periodic table. 
at this periodic table has, you know, a lot of different rows and columns, you know, of, of different types of knowledge that can be specific to an industry, to an occupation, to a task, to a certain part of the process. And when you work with people, you start realizing that, you know, you don't need a salesperson. You need a salesperson that has worked on this industry and on this segment and on this market and with these people because knowledge can be super specific. So because that combination is so large because knowledge is complex, meaning that there's a lot of uniqueness to the pieces of knowledge that need to be combined and that are complementary, you need to store knowledge in groups of people, you know, teams, the ones that have the knowledge. It's not individuals it's like this Theseus ship, like Google, I'm sure that is having turnover of people every year, like maybe by the thousands, but the ship keeps on going because as you change the parts, it sort of is the same ship. And it's very hard for any of those people that are coming in or out to create something similar on the side because it is this large ship that you're changing the, the parts from, the one that, that holds the knowledge. And that's what makes knowledge really hard to transfer because that complexity, the fact that it's a big periodic table, it's a gigantic alphabet, means that it has to be stored in networks of people. So it's not in small teams. It may be in a firm. It may be sometimes, you know, in an industry, in a location, like Silicon Valley knows more than any of the companies in Silicon Valley knows individually. And moving that, it's extremely hard. It's easier to bring people into those communities than to bring the knowledge out of those communities into other locations. So knowledge at the end of the day, when we look at the empirical research, that, and, and, and I've done a lot of empirical research in this space, is the more sophisticated an activity, the more it concentrates in space. And in some way, as our society becomes more of a knowledge society, even the forces of inequality become larger because few people can create things that are so scalable, so productive, and that they can be exported to everywhere, you know, with very small transportation costs that you are competing now in these global markets in which the incentive to co-localize with other people that are very complementary to you and that have the pieces of the puzzle that you don't have is, is what drives the location of the most sophisticated sectors. You introduced a couple terms, which I really liked. One was called person bite and the other one was firm bite. It's kind of, you know, how much information can you have within a single kind of human brain or body? I don't think that any individual human being now has more information than, say, the hunter-gatherer did 10,000 years ago. In fact, we might even have, have less, right? Those, they're probably smarter than we are, right? Or, you know, our brains are cluttered with the names of football players and actors and so forth. And theirs were, you know, filled with different types of species they were surrounded with. But nonetheless, we've seen this massive increase in information and knowledge. And this is not simply because we have more people. You know, if you add up the total amount of kind of information within all those brains, if there is this capacity and everybody's kind of at this capacity, then, you know, it should just kind of scale linearly. But I think you're arguing that, no, that's not the case. It's growing almost exponentially. Uh, even if the population were to, you know, start shrinking, it would not get in the way of this increase in the overall amount of information. And is that simply because the information is encoded in objects or is there something more to it? And I think you made this point that if you had someone on a desert island with access to the total sum of all the world's knowledge, they probably wouldn't be able to still do very much except maybe Google had to start a fire with sticks or something like that, but they wouldn't be able to do much more than that. No, I, I think you're right. And, and in some way, you know, it has to be something that goes beyond population because 
if it was just a function of population, you wouldn't see the huge differences in income and productivity and economic structure that you see in the world. Germany and Ethiopia have a very similar population, but what you know is manufactured in Germany and what is manufactured in Ethiopia is very different. And that means that there are groups of people in Germany that know how to you know, manufacture the BMWs and the Mercedes that get produced there that do not exist in the case of Ethiopia. So in the book, I look a little bit about like the things that help people connect because in some way, it's not just about people, it's about the cost that people face when connecting with others. And I, I look at it from two perspectives. One that is more, you know, traditional economics, you know, like a new institutional theory, like Coase, Williamson, which is the idea of transaction cost. And basically, you know, what that says is that firms are always looking to whether buy or make, and as firms grow, eventually they hit boundary in which making is undesirable. So they prefer to buy and that defines the boundary of the firm. You don't want to hire people. You want to buy services or products from the market. But there is another, you know, theory that also, you know, comes from the Bay Area. And, you know, to me, it's someone that in, I've mentioned him many times to economists. And even though he's a very highly cited guy, it's not well known within the economics community, which is Mark Granovacher. And he's, you know, the creator of you know, all of this economic sociology field. And basically what, what he did and what he says is that, look, there is something, you know, or there's a different way to think about this, which is we don't live in a world in which people are just like, you know, rational agents that are going around and they find people to interact with and they interact with them because it's beneficial. We live in a world in which people grow up in families, go to school, make friends, have sports teams. They have a lot of other mechanisms that help them create relationships with others. And the economy is built on top of that skeleton, that scaffold that gets formed for other reasons. So you start a venture with your friend from college or, you know, make a business deal with your cousin-in-law, you know, or your brother-in-law, whatever, you know, like that, because you are searching for people within that network that, that you have because that network has trust and trust is a way to reduce those transaction costs. So... There, I also go into the work of Francis Fukuyama wrote a wonderful book on trust. And the idea here is that a society that has low levels of trust is a society in which people need to invest a lot to know if you have to trust someone else. So a society with low levels of trust actually is a society that in some ways is going to be more relational in many ways, because if it's not easy for me to trust you, I have to go to dinner. You have to go to my house. I have to go to your house. We have to like almost become like brothers for me to go into business with you. In a society with high level of trust, you can very easily, hey, you do this, I do that. Let's try to do something together and you can have- So it supports a higher level of complexity, right? It exactly. supports a higher level of division of labor. It supports a, a higher level of connectedness and therefore higher level of complexity, right? Exactly. So you can have more links, you can create larger networks. And if you need networks to accumulate knowledge, you can accumulate more knowledge. In the US, it's commonplace for people to sometimes grow a company from a garage to 5,000 people in, in less than five years. That's really unique. In very few parts of the world, organizations can go to that scale that quickly. And that tells you something about, you know, society and the institutions that you have there. And also uh, the lack of those institutions and, and that culture in other places. And that's why it's not just about people. It's a lot about, you know, the cost of connection. If the cost of connection is low, might be more important than the number of people that you have. Like a little country, you know, like Singapore, 
can have networks that are much smarter collectively than a larger country with a much larger population and you know connections that are of lesser quality. Yeah, and I think I agree with you that the transaction cost economics and economic sociology are, you know, complements. They they fit together really well. And you talk a lot about standards and in business strategy, we talk a lot about standards and you didn't use the term, but you know, you talked about chunking. I usually think in terms of, you know, modularity, very similar concepts. And I think what I'm seeing uh, right now is almost an exponential growth in complexity in business ecosystems because of you know, APIs, right? APIs are, are kind of like those standards that allow for ever greater division of labor, ever greater chunking and uh, ever greater complexity. Do you see new forms of organization in these business ecosystems as continuation of this story that you've been describing? Yeah. And for example, like I've, I've been looking a lot at the API space in AI because I think like AI like five years ago was something like, oh, wow, this is new. This is cool. Everybody should get into this. And today, a lot of things that involve AI right now are starting to be served as API services, which make AI very tradable. So AI is not something that you need to build within your organization. It's something that you can get as a service. So if you want to summarize text, you go to Google, you search for summarized text, AI, API, you get a bunch of ads because they're competing with each other already. There's a bunch of companies that are trying to get into the market. And we have been using in my company, the GPT-3 engine, which sure, you know, you can try to trip it and find ridiculous stuff. But if you're trying to use it, you know, in a way that is going to be useful to you, it's amazing what it can do. And I have a company of 30 people who are never going to be able to, you know, reproduce something like that. It's not our expertise, you know, but we would be very interested on paying for that service that you can hit the API and you can ask, you know, questions that that API is able to respond uh, or services that it can do. So in the space of AI, I see that chunking happen, you know, very quickly in which it went from something that a lot of countries were trying to enter or compete to a space in which now there's a few players that have been able to create large, good models that are very tradable and is going to be a space, you know, of the software sector is a high export sector. It's extremely high export sector. And I think AI is moving very quickly also into that direction because of the chunking of the APIs. Yeah. And we, we even call it productizing. You know, you take something that you've developed internally and, you know, productize it. And the minute you productize it, then all of a sudden it's in a form that others can benefit from and, uh, you know, ultimately increases the, the overall complexity. This is probably a good time to switch uh, gears here and, and switch to this book here. This book is, I think, very timely because it, it talks about how we should be thinking about, or actually it's not about how we should, it's how people are thinking about the increasing presence of automated decision-making out there with machine learning and AI. And it's kind of a work of, I don't know, experimental philosophy. Is that what you would call it? It's social psychology from a technical perspective. So I, I work with a couple of postdocs of mine who were psychologists. And, and what you're doing is a clinical trial in which you have some people exposed to a scenario in a control condition. They see the scenario as the action of a human. And there's another group of people that experience the same scenario in the treatment condition, which would be the scenario being presented to them as the action of a machine. And, you know, that's how social psychologists usually do experiments, you know, in, in this case, it's a between subject study. So there's two different groups of people that get exposed, you know, to 
variation of the stimuli. And it's a very powerful technique because it allows you to, to basically identify differences that are based only on that small variation that you introduce. In our case was the subject of the sentence, the, the one that was performing the action, whether it was a human or a machine. I think the original motivation was this recognition that there exists this algorithm aversion. So when we find out that an autonomous vehicle has hit someone, we're kind of outraged in a way that we wouldn't if it was a human being in many cases, if it's an accident, if the human being is, I don't know, they drop their coffee on their lap and then they hit someone. We accept that. We know that this is a natural part of people driving. And so the concern is that even if autonomous driving is radically safer than, than humans, it's going to have to be 10x safer before people are willing to accept it. But I think what you discovered is that it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. We don't simply say negative consequences that come from algorithmic decision-making are automatically worse. There's a bit of subtlety in there, and it boils down to which part of our immorality is affected, right? Yep. So I think there's two things in the book that help add nuance to the discussion because it is easy to dismiss this idea by simply saying, you know what, people prefer humans to machines and that's all there is to it. But in the book, we found like two ways that I think give us some texture. One of them is that it depends on the moral dimension. So in moral dimensions that are related to harm, when you have you know, physical harm, where you have an accident that causes harm in a population, all of those things, there we do see that people tend to judge machines very harshly compared to how they judge humans in the same situation. But in a scenarios involving fairness, people tend to judge the humans a little bit harsher than the machines. So we have, for example, a scenario in which a songwriter or an algorithm is found out to have plagiarized songs, you know, when it was tasked to produce songs for some singers. And in that case, people judge the human much harsher. Then we have a, a lot of examples on algorithmic bias involving university admissions, you know, policing, salary increases, and there people also tend to judge humans a little bit harsher than machines. Not a lot, but a little bit harsher than machines. So now when we zoom out, and this is kind of like the other result of the book, and we look at all of those scenarios together and we say, what is going on here? Is it that people like humans more than they like machines? Or is there something more? And we find that there's something more, that people use a different moral philosophy to judge humans and to judge machines. We judge humans with a moral philosophy that is based on what the person was trying to do. It's about intention, motivation. And we judge machines with a moral philosophy that is consequentialist. What is the outcome of the scenario? We don't care if the machine was trying to do the right thing, was trying to rescue the people, was trying to avoid the accident, even though we can put these things explicitly on the scenarios. Like people care about the outcome. So we're very utilitarian, very consequentialist when we're judging machines. And we tend to be more Kantian. We tend to care more about like the motivation, the intentions of people when we're judging humans. And there's some, to me, like what is a very interesting figure is that you can put this in mathematical terms. And these are kind of like planes, one that is a little bit rotated from the other. And it's that rotation, the one that shows you kind of like these different moral philosophies. Yeah, I love the idea of this function that you developed, which was there's intent, then there's the impact on these five sources of, of morality. And then there's the, identity of the actor. And all of those are going to be combined into some kind of measure of, of wrongness. I really like that. Um, but it, it does seem a little contrary to what we're seeing, at least in the news, right? We see all sorts of awareness, at least in Silicon Valley, about you know algorithmic bias. And there's much less discussion about kind of the human biases that it's replacing. We don't 
typically see them evaluated uh, side by side. In many cases, even when the algorithm is less biased, it seems like people are more concerned. Why do you suppose that is it? Because it seems to be contrary to what you're suggesting. Is that just an impression that people are getting from the the media right now? There's this kind of backlash against uh, kind of algorithms? Yeah, so I do think there is a little bit of that in part. Like one of the things that motivated me to write the book is that I would see all of the moralizing that was going on without proper counterfactuals. And and I'm a big believer that when you judge things like the ones that we're judging in, in the book, it's important to also judge at the margin, meaning is it improving the situation or not compared to the current state of affairs? And I didn't see that happening. So for instance, in the United States, you know, there has been a lot of concern about bias in algorithms that are used in the justice system, advanced parole systems, for instance. And and I think there are good reasons to be concerned, you know, like people have found biases in those algorithms and so forth. But why are people using those algorithms in the first place? And the reason is because there are courthouses across the country that would have sometimes 6,000 cases that they need to process. And if those cases are not processed, these people are still on, you know, being detained, you know, until the parole hearing can happen and so forth. So yeah, maybe, you know, there is bias when you do it with a machine. There is bias when you do it with a human. But when you do it with a human, there is bias and there is the weight because of the overload. And if we only focus on the bias in the case of the machine and we don't put it on the larger context, we may be not judging things um, correctly. You know, we may be being too harsh when there's something that is improving the state of a system. And we're not doing it too constructively because at the end, I, I'm a big believer that the people that develop the algorithms, the people in the courthouses, the people that are affected, in all, many of them do want to improve the system and they want to be able to do the things better. And they have problems of scalability, of being overworked and so forth. So if it's done constructively, you can improve. Of course, you know, we know from the literature that to be constructive, to be able to improve, to be able to be creative, you need like a safe environment in which you can have mistakes. We might not be having that right now. So when I talk more in confidence with colleagues in the Bay Area and off the record and privately, many of them do tell me we're not touching that with a with a hundred foot pole because they're afraid of getting burned. When these are colleagues that would have the capacity to maybe, you know, try and improve those systems because, you know, they are not only aware of the issues, but they are also aware of how to build them, which is really hard. There's a lot of people that can complain about these things, but there are few people that can improve them and we want to empower those people. So a little bit like the book when I out on a limb on a space in which I didn't have, you know, much experience before by creating a very comprehensive set of experiments, diving deep into the literature, learning from those experiments, but also trying to come up with a volume of work that says, let's put this into context and let's try to be a little bit more constructive at whether we can improve using technology and how and whether we're improving with respect to the current system because our system right now is not perfect. And comparing AI or machines or any type of system with perfection can be a looser proposition. You may be giving up the opportunities to improve certain systems, to improve the life of certain people because of a, a criteria that might be unrealistic, that is not pegged down to reality, which is what I think we should do. Now, I like you were talking about intent, and you said that when we're evaluating human actions, we tend to focus on the intent to some degree, whereas when we look at automated decision-making or decision-making by robots or algorithms, we discount intent. 
you know, what does it really mean to think about intent? You had some interesting comments on when people are thinking about the intent of the algorithm. How do they think about that differently from the intent of humans? And does it depend on how much we anthropomorphize the kind of algorithm? You mentioned in the book about how people can develop emotional attachment to robots and things like that. If we did develop that attachment, or if the decision maker was anthropomorphized in some way, would we then start to attribute intent more to the algorithm? So that's a good question. And I can talk a little bit more knowledgeably about it because it's part of the research that I'm doing right now. So I'm working with a grad student here, Jingling Zhang. And basically what we're trying to do is to understand why people judge humans and machines differently. And what we're doing is looking at the way in which people judge humans and machines by looking at the way in which people build mental models of other people. And we know from more psychology, but we know also going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, that the way that people make mental models of other people is mainly across two dimensions, agency and experience. Are you capable of doing stuff or are you capable of feeling stuff? So humans tend to see other humans as very capable of doing things and very capable of feeling stuff. So they're high in agency, high in experience. So they have high moral agency and high moral status. For instance, would be very high on experience, like a five months old baby is precious. You shouldn't damage, you should protect it, but it's very low on the agency. It's not capable of doing things. So you have kind of like those two dimensions and you can position, you know, machines and humans and animals in that space. And apparently we do that within our minds. Now, machines, you know, are perceived to be intermediate in levels of agency, but very low in levels of experience. So the robot cannot feel, but the robot can do. And you're going to start thinking of modifying how much you make people believe that the robot can do. Is this, you know, a robot that is, you know, very capable? So you describe a situation in which you have an advanced robot, you know, that it's very anthropomorphizing in its capacities, but also maybe in its experience or maybe all in its capacities, but not in the experience. And you kind of start, you know, nudging those descriptions to move around, you know, the robot point a little bit within that agency experience space and see how that then affects the way in which people judge humans and machines. What we do find is that, and what we do know from the literature is that experience is very much about the status. So whether it's permissible to do something to a machine, but to your question, agency is the one that is related to intent. So the more people would believe that machine is capable of reasoning, understanding the consequences, choosing the actions, the more that machine should move to the, let's say, right in the scale of intent, the more the machine is just like stupid and doing the same thing all the time, then the more it would move to the less in intent. Now, you can unpack that a little bit more because intent is a continuous. You can think, you know, of intent not only as kind of like this internal agency and drive, but whether something is doing what it is intended to do. So think of a self-driving car that is programmed to save pedestrians at all costs or to save drivers at all costs. And in the same scenario, it has a different outcome. It's not because it was intending to run over a pedestrian or you know, intending to injure the driver, but it's because it is behaving that it's intended to do. So if you have objective functions and you have machines that can choose how to behave within those objective functions, you are endowing them with some level of agency. And I think people tend to, to see that. And we're now trying to see if we move that agency around, whether we can change the judgments that people have. 
if you get bitten by a dog, right? I mean, you get, you blame the dog, but you also blame the owner. You know, to what extent does moral blame ascend through the organization, go to whoever it is that programmed the agent or who owns the agent or on whose behalf the agent is acting? And what does this say about kind of responsibility and delegation? I think in the book, you, you talk about how if you have a human who's doing something, well, you can insulate yourself from blame and heads can roll and, and you can move on. But if, if it's an algorithm, then, you know, you can't just fire the algorithm and, and move on. And to some extent, you as the principal have to take responsibility. Yeah, that was a, a finding that was quite clear. I don't think it's very counterintuitive. It's kind of obvious, but I think it's important because it tells you that when in some examples, we would ask people who was responsible for the action, whether it was the principal, like the main organization that hired the team or where was the team or the AI that executed the action. And as soon as the action was executed by an AI, the responsibility shifted, you know, completely almost to the parent organization. So let's say you are a major newspaper and you start producing a, a new section and it's written by machines or it's written by a team of, you know, journalists fresh out of college and they publish something controversial and everything falling down on the Twitterverse. And then you have to retract it and take action. If it was a machine, the responsibles are going to be the top heads of the organization. If it was a team of college students, you fire the team of college students and you took care of the problem and you save much more face in the context of that organization. So that's a little bit of like what that part of the book uh, appears to suggest. I have to say that some of the images in the book were difficult to forget. You had to concoct some images that there was purity and then there was fairness. And uh, the, when it came to fairness, then the humans were really the ones that kind of took the blame much more, but also in, in this area of, of purity, right? The robots were, how are they going to know? They're not going to know that these things are, we give them a little bit of leeway because we understand that they're not going to get these subtle human cues, right? Yeah, like things like sacred. So I borrowed um, an, an, a scenario from Jonathan Hyde's questionnaire in which a robot or a human cleans a bathroom with a flag, you know, and in that scenario, the human gets a, uh, much harsher judgment in comparison. But I think it's exactly what you're saying here, which is the, you know, the machine gets a pass because it's not expected to know that the flag of, you know, your country is pure sacred in, in some way. So uh, I think both these books were, were fascinating. In the end of this book, you actually spent some time talking about how you wrote this book. And, and I was really glad that I read that appendix. Sometimes you, know, you skip the appendices, but I was really glad that I read that because it gave a window into kind of not just your mind, but your process by which you took what was in your imagination and put it into sort of solid form, which I still have the, you know, the solid form. Maybe we can end on this note, but how is it that your mind works? You seem like you have restless curiosity and that you have a question, you pursue it, and then it raises more questions and then you pursue it and you don't seem to respect any disciplinary boundaries. How do you pursue a career like that? Do you find that to be difficult in some ways? Do you have difficulty figuring out where you fit within the academic infrastructure? Yeah, it's hard. I I like to say life is too short to have one career, you know, and it sounds counterintuitive, but the idea is that since life is short, you want to try a lot of things because you get only one life, you know? And in that context, I've loved exploring different things and going deep into different topics at different stages in my life. You know, uh, as I was coming of age, I did my undergrad and my PhD in physics. And I think I, I got a good understanding of, you know, how, how physics works. And, but then I got 
very much interested on questions of economic development. I've worked for many years on the geography of knowledge, you know, and, and develop machine learning methods to understand the geography of knowledge that have been very well received. Now I'm also interested in questions of, you know, moral philosophy and, and for instance, on digital democracy, I've started to work with lawyers and designers and computer scientists in creating platforms of participation and, and figuring out how to make law more accessible and how to provide civic education about some of these issues through technology. And, and the reason why I do that is because I think a lot of the learning happens on the first part of the learning curve. I'm a big fan of this guy called Leon Thurston, you know, which among many of the things that he did, you know, in his PhD, he established the concept of, of learning curve. And, and the learning curves are very steep in the beginning and then you start hitting diminishing returns. I studied physics, you know, for like eight years, my undergrad and my PhD. No, I did a lot of learning there. I, I'm not at a level in which I could make a contribution to fundamental physics at all, you know, but I think I understand how it works. I've been working on economics for about 16 years now, so I don't have a formal degree, but I am not new to the field. I know, you know, like most of the concepts and models and the things that get repeated. And, and you do also start hitting those diminishing returns. Now I've also become interested on these other questions of, you know, moral philosophy and, and I'm learning a lot, you know, like at some point when you are at the top of the learning curve, when you've been in a field too much, you start facing kind of like that grind in which now you're like splitting hairs to be at the edge of like a mountain that a lot of people have already climbed. And I, I don't shy away from being driven by, by curiosity. At the same time, I know that I pay a price for it. It's difficult, it's hard, you don't have a home. Academia can be a little bit parochial. People you know, want to support and, and grow people from their own community. But I also know that there's a lot of students out there and people that are also curious and that they enjoy working with me. They come to me for advice and we end up always developing you know, good relationships that I think uh, help them in some way immunize from some of the problems that I had to face. You know? Well, you say that objects are where we deposit information, and these are some great objects. Why Information Grows, check it out. It's really a, a classic, I think, now. And your most recent book, How Humans Judge Machines, very provocative and hopefully just the beginning of a whole line of inquiry that you're going to continue to pursue. Thank you so much, Cesar, for joining me. Thank you, Greg. It was my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.